Good morning from WKYT News. I'm Bill Bryant, and we welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers and hope you're enjoying your weekend. Later, we'll get an update on the process of destroying more than 500 tons of chemical weapons stored at the Bluegrass Army Depot near Richmond. For years, people in central Kentucky have worried about a leak or an accident there, so that's coming up in a few minutes. But first, the Hope Center in Lexington is under new leadership. Lexington has dealt with homelessness and addiction issues for decades. In 1993, the Hope Center opened a shelter and has expanded its programs over the years as needs have grown. Uh, you may know Rufus Friday is the former publisher of the Lexington Herald-Leader or his time at KCTCS. Now he is in charge at the Hope Center, and we welcome Rufus Friday to Kentucky Newsmakers. Thanks for coming. We really appreciate it very much. Bill, thank you very much, and I do appreciate you asking me on today. And in fairness, you've only been on the job a few days. <laughs> uh, eight days to be exact, but uh, you know, who's counting? <laughs> but you know, you know the important role uh, that, that the Hope Center uh, uh, plays in the community and, and, and all of the important things that it does. And you've told me that even in the last few days, you have learned more and heard stories and you, you know how important it is to, to people who uh, make use of it. Yeah, you know, as I said earlier, that one of the things that I do in my uh, when I come to different markets is, you know, I, I kind of lead and manage by walking around. And it's uh, it's been great to be able to get out and walk the sidewalks and uh, meet up with some of the clients that are there and to just hear their stories. And I think that one of the things that probably resonates more so than anything is that they always come out with, this, the Hope Center saved my life. You know, I was on a road to where it, it, was, a, it was a road that I did not like. But identifying and finding the Hope Center and going through some of the programs that they provide has put me back on a proper track. So I'm really grateful and thankful to be working for an organization that is mission-driven as the Hope Center is. And each person does have his her, or her own story as to, to how they got in those circumstances. Yes, from uh, individuals that have been trapped with uh, drug addiction or dealing with uh, you know, alcohol or having uh, taken a, a wrong path uh, early on, coming to the Hope Center has been that uh, that diversion to get them back on track again, and being able to work with individuals that are there, that are peer mentors that have gone through the program and have actually sat in those individual shoes, it tends to resonate more so with them. Yeah, the overdose deaths have been climbing around the country. The statistics are tough here in Kentucky. The pandemic continues out there, and we're beginning to see some concerning numbers in that uh, yet again. Uh, this is quite a challenge to take on at a time like this, isn't it? Well, it, it is, but the thing about it is what I, what I have been impressed with and blown away by is the, the team at the Hope Center. Uh, you know, keep in mind that even at the heat of the uh, pandemic back in uh, 2020, uh, how much did you hear about the uh, challenges that the uh, homeless were having? I mean, the Hope Center stayed open. They were also uh, really blessed with having some great partners to come alongside them to help them to be able to space out uh, some of the needs at the emergency shelter. Uh, uh, one case, one in point was, you know, Transylvania University uh, came uh, to their aid and provided their gymnasium for the, the folks on the emergency shelter so that they could have that ability to be able to space out. But as far as, you know, testing and uh, uh, cases. You didn't hear about any kind of an outbreak at the Hope Center's uh, emergency shelter for the men's or the women's, which is a great testament for the uh, the, the team that uh, works at the, the Hope Center uh, driving the mission for um, the organization. How has that mission changed over the years, or, or do you see it changing going forward? I know, uh, you know, originally, and, and still, the, the, the main thing is shelter, but uh, there's so many other programs now, and it's so diversified. 
Yep, and I'm, I'm learning as, as I go. It's one, it's one of those things to where uh, it's so much, so many tentacles that the Hope Center has. You know, from uh, drug recovery, addiction to uh, assisting those that have got mental uh, mental health disorders, and uh, most recently working with the, in partnership with the Kentucky Department of Corrections with the intensive outpatient program, which is a, a program that uh, to help alleviate some of the jail overcrowdedness and deal with some uh, drug addiction and alcohol at low levels instead of sending those individuals uh, to jail uh, there's this intensive outpatient uh, program that the Hope Center uh, provides which is a six-month program to get individuals into uh, off of uh, drug and, and alcohol addiction versus sending them to uh, an, an incarceration uh, outcome. The city has a, an office of uh, homelessness prevention and outreach at this point, and, and they, they go out and assess needs, uh, and there are other providers uh, in the city. Do you think that the effort, uh, from what you know at this point, is well coordinated enough uh, so that uh, Lexington can tackle this uh, homelessness and addiction problem? You know, Bill, I, I don't know a lot about it, but I do know that one of the things that I am excited about is uh, the uh, office's uh, new uh, initiative on uh, Lex, Lex in hope, homelessness here in Lexington. So I'm looking forward to, you know, getting uh, read up on that uh, as, as quickly as possible. But uh, working with the mayor and, and Polly Reddick and her team, uh, it's, it's exciting. And I'm, I'm, I'm as I said before, eight days on the job, and yeah. <laughs> I, I, I wish I was well versed in it, but uh, I'll get there. How do you think you will you will measure success, though? I mean, I I'll measure success by uh, being able to say that every client that comes through the Hope Center will have a pathway to self sufficiency. And like I said before, it's it's it, it's amazing that uh, you know we we live in a country that is the most economically blessed and most powerful on the planet and we still have homelessness and we have to be bold about uh, addressing it and I think that you know that the initiatives that are in play uh, here the the Lexin homelessness uh, initiative I, we I you know my my athletic background I like a competitive I did I like I like a competitive challenge and I see this as one so I'm, I'm energized about it and I know the team at the Hope Center uh, is as well and we've got some really uh, committed uh, donors. We need more, of course, and the more funding that we have, the better off that we can uh, address some of the, the needs that we have in this community here. You talk about, though, this frustration that we continue to have a homelessness problem in the country, and yet we know right now we do have this uh, the, the housing market uh, that is, uh, you know, red hot and, 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 and tight, and people have difficulty uh, finding affordable housing, be it to, to buy or to rent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, and, and that's one. You know, that's also another uh, arm of what the Hope Center does is we do provide uh, transitional housing, and we also try to get people moving to a pathway to permanent housing. But once again, we all know that there's you know the challenge here in uh, our, our community is with uh, affordable housing, and uh, you know I was involved with a uh, or, uh, with a task force that was uh, commissioned by uh, Vice Mayor Steve Kay and was headed up by Councilmember James Brown, uh, neighborhoods and uh, task force on neighborhoods and transition. And we were looking at addressing those uh, issues with affordable housing for those individuals that are in that, uh, in that, in that set. So, Do you think people would be surprised uh, to know that the number of people who need homelessness services uh, are veterans uh, who have served the country? I think that probably... Uh, I don't know, maybe five years uh, ago that they wouldn't have known, but I think that we have placed more of an emphasis on what's happened with uh, veterans in the, the community, and it's becoming more and more um, 
well known. The name Hope Center was uh, was intentional then, and uh, you know certainly is relevant now. If you look toward what will be the 30th anniversary uh, coming up of the, the, the founding of the Hope Center in Lexington, uh, what will be your goals moving moving toward that time? Well, like I said before, my my ultimate goal, I mean, I want to set a vision that where any client that comes through the Hope Center, we will guarantee that they will move to self-sufficiency. That's I know it's a, it, it's a bold goal. It's a big bold goal. I know that we may, you know, there may be a few uh, folks that we may not uh, be able to move to that, but that's going to be the ultimate goal is that when you come to the Hope Center, there is going to be a, a, a direct and uh, intentional pathway to self-sufficiency. You know, one of the things I really would like to say about the Hope Center is that you know, I've worked for my, over my entire uh, professional career in the private sector, and you were always told that hope was not a strategy, but I can clearly say and confidently say that uh, working with the Hope Center that hope is indeed a strategy for anybody that comes to us and we're going to make sure that uh, they have that opportunity to, as I say before, uh, move to a level of self-sufficiency because we know that that, that provides a, a level of confidence and it also helps our, 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 community, our commonwealth here as well. And they have to be motivated, right? And yes. you've talked about tough love. Yes, you, you do. I mean, and the thing about it is that, you know, that tough love means that uh, what, what I think that I love about the Hope Center is that uh, our peer, we have peer mentors that do a great job of, of telling their unabashed story about the life, that the pathway that they uh, traversed, and most importantly, how the Hope Center turned their life around. So it's great to have uh, those peer mentors there and to also have those licensed uh, clinicians and licensed caseworkers there to, to guide and facilitate uh, these uh, groups uh, uh, programs that we have as well. I want to give you a moment to make your pitch to uh, people that may be able to help you because you have uh, uh, various ways that the community can assist. Right? Oh, absolutely. And one of the things I'm going to say is that, you know, first and foremost, call me. Um, <laughs> I, you know, my number is 859-721-0144. And I'm hopeful that when I call on individuals that you'll take my call and I've developed a lot of relationships and uh, collaborative partnerships at my time when I was at the Herald Leader as well as the time that I've had with KCTCS so I'm looking forward to uh, working with uh, those partners again and also working with our, our, our local uh, government officials that I know very well also because I think that we have a successful formula at the Hope Center. Uh, we just need uh, support and, yep. and help from the community with, uh, with funding as well. And it can be contributions, it can be volunteerism, volunteerism. collaboration in some way. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I'm looking forward to being able to get out and hit the streets and start talking to people about the Hope Center. Do you miss the newspaper business? I do. I, 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 You're on the business side, <laughs> Olaf. We'll point that out. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the business side of one of those things. It, it was a challenge, but you know, I, I miss the excitement. I miss waking up and knowing that every day is not going to be alike. And you know, there are times that when you're sitting in the publisher's chair, you know, when you you wake up in the morning, you made half the people happy and half the people mad. <laughs> right. We understand. <laughs> Rufus Friday. Thank you so much for coming by. Really do appreciate it. Thank you, Bill, for having me. I appreciate it. And we'll stay with us now on Kentucky Newsmakers. We'll get an update on the efforts to rid Central. Kentucky of nerve agent coming up on WKYT. 
Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. Glad to have you on WKYT. Word came this week that the first M55 rockets containing VX nerve agent have been destroyed at the Bluegrass Army Depot. It's a start. There are nearly 18,000 rockets there containing agent that results in a deadly agent when it's act activated. The rockets have been rusting away in bunkers for decades. The public has known about it since the 1980s. It's been a saga ever since of public activism, battles that went from city Hall to Congress and finally a plan to get the job done in recent years and a lot more cooperation. Joining us to update us, Dr. Candace Coyle from the Bluegrass Army Depot, the plant that is located there uh, in Richmond and working for the Department of Defense and the Army, and Ron Hink, who is project manager for Bechtel Parsons, the major contractor on this major project. Thanks for coming. We appreciate it very much. Thanks for having us. So for disclosure, I go way back. I was around when the public uh, became aware of the uh, nerve agent there uh, and, and covered the concerns in the 1980s, early 90s about the different uh, disposal methods that were uh, proposed. Uh, uh, people have lived their lives for decades concerned, but there has been a, an attempt to work from both sides, the public and uh, the Defense Department and the contractors in, in recent years. How important uh, is that relationship and that partnership? Fundamental. Um, the public has been a very key part as to why we've been able to be successful. Um, we have a lot of stakeholders, but the local elected officials, uh, the community members, the two advisory boards that we have assigned to us have been such great supporters for us, and I think that's why we've had the success we've had, especially in the last two years. Ron, how do you assure the community uh, that you're working to get this done safely? Uh, a couple ways. We brief them regularly. Um, and as we face challenges, because you know it's an aging stockpile, there can be challenges and a few surprises, uh, we engage them, uh, very transparent with how we're dealing with those. And the other thing we do is we have basically walked them through the plant. So they've seen the operation, they understand the dedication that the workforce has to safety and protecting the community, and we basically stay very close to them. While this process is ongoing, should the public uh, have concerns about uh, either a, a malfunction somehow in the process or the lingering stockpile that uh, is not yet destroyed? So we have a very in-depth safety system, so there's layers and layers of safety. We also invest a lot of energy in training our workforce. So we don't just introduce agent and then try to get good at processing it. We get good at processing off simulations before we put any agent in the plant. So very focused. Dr. Core, we hear that you know 28% of the stockpile is now destroyed. What, what does that mean? So that means that in the last two years, we've uh, destroyed um, the projos, all nerve projectiles are now complete. So that has been the good news story. And we're about 90% done with the mustard projectiles, which should end in the next couple of months. Mm -hmm. In which case, we will be complete with all projectiles that have sat here at this chemical stockpile, which is a huge success in the last two years. And then we just started the rocket campaigns. Uh, this will be our second to last. We're doing the VX first, which is about 18,000 rockets. And then once we're complete with that, will be at 48% complete, and the last 51% will be the GB rockets. You know, there have been various proposals over these many years. At one point, there was uh, early on talk of transporting it somewhere mm -hmm. else to maybe an incinerator, and, and, and the area could be ridded of the uh, nerve agent in that way. Uh, there was talk of an incinerator being built on site. There were environmental concerns, a lot of uh, community uh, angst about that, and ultimately this decision was made to do this neutralization process. Is that the superior way to, to get this done? Um, 
it's effective and very safe in terms of it's simply mixing the agent with you know water and caustic, uh, and it breaks it down very effectively. And there's very effective ways to test to make sure that that has in fact happened. So it's a well understood mature process. What should the public know about what you're doing out there in terms of the teamwork involved to to uh, to, to do this safely? Uh, kind of what I said before in the fact that we are well trained. Uh, we rehearse, um, I would say, off normal type scenarios. We hope to never experience those. But, you know, our workforce is basically conditioned and understands how to react. Um, we've got a lot of defense in depth and, you know, surprise isn't our friend here. We want to be prepared for whatever we face, but uh, pretty confident that we've got a really safe approach. And I, I would add to that too, I think the big thing that makes us successful on that front is not just the culture within the plant itself, but we have the Kentucky Department of Environmental for Environmental Protection involved, the CDC is involved, we have the Chemical Stockpile Emergency Preparedness Program, so it's not about just safety within the plant, it's safety within the community and then going throughout the state. So it's been very effective and having those outside eyes looking in helps us see things that we may not always see. Yep that we need. Did COVID set you back? It was a challenge for sure, but we really, um, thanks to the support from our workforce, we kind of stepped back, um, reserved some of our resources, kind of pulled them home and pulled in what we needed on an as needed basis. And we actually uh, improved our schedule during COVID. So the work, workers did really, really well. Uh, will more equipment have to be brought in or is it being constructed or whatever to, to finish? We, we understand this is said to be the fourth of five campaigns mm -hmm. to destroy the agent there? Yes, it is. And so the, we have the main plan and we have a stat detonation chamber that's currently doing the mustard projectiles. Once that facility is done doing mustard, it's going to be transitioned over for nerve agent to do drained warheads or chemical warheads that are being drained of agent in the main plant. So that facility will be transitioned over. But we're building another facility um, as a static detonation chamber 2000, as we call it. It's larger. It can actually detonate a, um, a full-size rocket. So this is our way of being able to handle very safely the overpacks that we have in the GB rocket campaign. Um, and that will be the first and only kind uh, configured for this purpose in the world. Ron, when you have these uh, public hearings or meetings or gatherings or give tours or whatever, what do people want to know? Uh, largely where we at. I think there's a lot of confidence in how we're executing. Again, we're very transparent with that, but very excited to see the progress. And it's been a long journey, you know, to get here. And I think people are really comfortable with the progress being made. Uh, let's talk about that journey, by the way. You know, it, again, uh, this was something that uh, uh, has required cooperation at all levels, Congress, uh, the Department of Defense, the state of Kentucky, the local governments, all had a stakeholder. I remember uh, in the early 90s, uh, there was apparently a, a small leak. It was not reported. Uh, <laughs> the local officials then passed ordinances saying that has to be reported to them uh, very quickly, and then the media has to be told of it. So uh, times changed in terms of, uh, on all sides, in terms of how the information is handled as well. Yes, very much so. In fact, uh, whenever we have any sort of incident at all, we have a lot of oversight. That's my job, really, as the government lead here, uh, is oversighting the project that Ron is seen as the contract system contractor for the project. But we also have uh, many at the 
OSD level, as you can imagine, uh, that also work with us in Congressional. We actually had uh, Senator Paul here recently and briefed mm -hmm. him on our status, and we anticipate uh, Senator McConnell coming in very shortly. So we constantly are in that reporting, but we've gotten to the point where we're really good at making sure we have awareness across the board, and I think that builds the trust that we need in these last couple years as we finish up the project. What is a reportable incident? Well, we report pretty much everything, everything. that's <laughs> off normal, but in terms of off the project, if we ever had agent outside of engineering controls, that's definitely going to go right out uh, to the community with an explanation as to what occurred. But that, like I said, that is very unlikely with the levels of protection we have. Above and beyond what you're doing right there on site, uh, there are uh, emergency protections to the community, uh, mm -hmm. Madison County and surrounding counties, really, uh, right, uh, in terms of the CSEP program. Correct. Right. And that th they're in charge of alerting uh, anybody to any issue. Yes, and in fact, we do an annual drill every September uh, where we do a scenario and we move it out through the whole process. So we don't know what the incident or scenario is going to be. Um, and we are engaged with that. We pull together our team and act out as though something may have occurred, and that brings the entire community in. And it's always a really good exercise to find lessons learned, but usually the couple that I've been through so far have just been stellar. Mm -hmm. Ron, you have uh, worked other sites, uh, maybe not one that was uh, at this level or done in this way, but uh, do you find this to be uh, uh, on level with uh, the, the other places that things have been done? Yeah, I do, and I think there's more complexity here for sure. I mean, we saved the best for last um, in terms of uh, the rockets and the projectiles, different configurations, but the dedication of this workforce is um, better than I have seen. They're, they're very dedicated, in some cases pretty seasoned because they've been through several of these sites, which is good. They bring that experience here, but uh, very, very good focus, which is what we need. When this is all done, and that's a question that you know people uh, have, and you say now you th you're, you're projecting two years. Is that, is your Our congressional general? mandate is December of 2023, and, and we are tracking to that schedule. I believe you'll make it. Yes. Yeah. What happens next uh, at the depot? What happens uh, to uh, you know the employees who are there? Uh, some of them may want to stay in the area, have these skills that they've acquired, perhaps. Right. So the depot itself has its own mission, conventional munitions. Right. So their mission, con uh, their mission continues. Uh, we are uh, what we like to call a sunset program. Uh, when we're done, we will d uh, take the plant down to a closure level, um, make sure that we're meeting all of our permit and regulatory requirements by the state um, and by the. Um, Army and then we will leave and that will be the plan a lot of our folks on the government side I'll let you speak to the contracting side um, there are, will be uh, opportunities for them to relocate but like Ron referred to earlier a lot of folks have been doing this program for a while so I think this is their retirement this is the last site um, and it will be the end of a very long mission so I think there's gonna be a lot of happy retirements at the end for us yep some will retire in the area for sure there's quite a few um, this has been a long program uh, and I also think we're, you know, from a, a Bechtel Parsons point of view, we are doing a lot of work with uh, the community to try to look for what are the opportunities for future mission here that might come in and use some of the infrastructure we've created. Obviously, it has to be coordinated well with the Army, but we're, we're seeding some ideas and some opportunities mm -hmm. that one might pursue. But as far as you know, the, the Department of Defense will maintain that, that, that facility. I mean, you said the mission continues. Uh, the other things that the are The Department done, of the Army yeah, will maintain yeah. the Army Depot itself and yeah. its conventional uh, munitions uh, mission, but will withdraw from the site where a tenant. 
So we'll be done living there. You don't so. know what's next, right? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> My yeah. job is to clean it up and make sure that we leave safely. Well, thank you for coming in, thank updating us. Much. We appreciate it very much. And uh, as we, uh, as I know many people say transparency is very much appreciated. Yeah, yeah. always. Thanks. Thank you. We're going to come back in just a moment, and we'll be back on WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. We really appreciate you being with us today. And you might call it a space face-off. Amazon's Jeff Bezos says in, in a few days he's going to be the first billionaire in space. But Virgin Galactic's Richard Branson says, been there, done that. So who really does get the official title? Well, it's not as cut and dry as you might think. Our chief national political analyst Greta Van Susteren explains. Hello, I'm Greta Van Susteren, and here is your full court fast break. The great space race, no longer between the U.S. and the USSR. This is a battle of the billionaires to pioneer and corner astro-tourism. On July 20th, the anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos is flying past the edge of space. His company, Blue Origin, will launch its New Shepard rocket for its maiden crewed voyage. Bezos would tell you this will make him the first billionaire in space. You're probably thinking, wait, didn't Richard Branson beat him to it? Well, it depends on who you ask. Last Sunday, the Virgin Empire founder soared 54 miles into the sky, floating weightless for about four minutes. But his small rocket plane did not cross the Kármán line. That is the internationally recognized boundary into space, just over 62 miles up. But NASA, the FAA, and the Air Force say the boundary is closer to the Earth, that it starts only 50 miles up. And do not forget about Tesla founder and CEO Elon Musk. He has not been to space yet, but earlier this year, his company SpaceX sent astronauts to the International Space Station. And in September, another billionaire is charting one of Musk's rockets for a three-day orbit. No word yet on how much that will cost him. But someone paid $28 million in an auction to join the upcoming Bezos flight. And Virgin Galactic is charging $250,000 a seat. It says more than 600 people have already signed up. Want more Full Court Press? Tune in Sundays. We bring politics home covering the national stories that impact you. And you remember that you can catch Full Court Press with Greta Van Susteren coming up this morning at 11.30 on WKYT right after Face the Nation. Garrett Reimer will have your latest news tonight here on WKYT. Updates, of course, always throughout the day on WKYT.com. I'll see you this week on WKYT News, and we hope you make it a good week ahead.